this week's episode of Unleashed. And man, we have got some fun stuff um, planned for you today. I mean, this is going to be one of those interviews that is going to, um, I think it's going to light your fire. Um, it's going to be one of those interviews that encourages you that you really can do anything when you're in the right mindset and you know that you have the God of the universe, um, you know, pushing you along the way. So anyhow, man, today is going to be fun. Um, you know, each week when we do the episodes, I just want to encourage you, um, if you can, man, give us a like, you know, give us a follow. Um, uh, you can go to the unleashed.men website as well. And we've got some new stuff up there. We're going to tell you about at another time, a little bit later called unleashed plus, but, uh, Man, anyhow, this is going to be a good day today. Eric, we've got some questions before we get started. Yes, we do. Okay, I've got two questions. Uh, first one is from John from California. John is wondering, uh, when bow hunting, when is it best? When is the best time to aim low at the deer in case the deer ducks? Is it when they're closer or further away? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's just basic science kind of, you know, when you think about it, you know, you got the speed of sound, how fast something travels, and that sound is going faster, um, you know, than what you're you're going to be shooting. So at, at close distance, um, you know, you're going to be launching the aerial pretty, you know, pretty much on, on target. And I'd say, you know, 15, 20 yards. Even then, I still aim just a smidge low. Um, you know, you've got that crease behind the, the front shoulder. And, you know, where you're going to find that heart is right where that crease is coming together. So I'll aim just a smidge low, uh, you know, at that distance. So if he does duck a little bit, you know, I've still got, you know, two or three inches of play there. But when they're out, you know, more like 30, 40 yards, you got to really adjust. I mean, a deer can duck, you know, a third of his body, I mean, in a fraction of a second. And so just to make sure you're doing a good hit and not hitting them high. Yeah, I would say always aim just a smidge low. Um but yeah, I think the further away you just gotta you just gotta aim a little bit lower than that even. So yeah. Great. Got another one? I do. Second here. Uh this is Steve from Colorado. Steve wants to know, he says, I uh he does not have a rangefinder and has never harvested a deer with this bow from a tree. What are some good techniques to judge the distance and uh what sight pin should I use if I'm twenty feet in a tree? Well, your sight pin is just going to be you going out to the range, you know, and sighting in your, your sight pins. I, I sight in my, my 20, 30, 40, and if I've got a five pin, yeah, I do it in 10-yard increments. Or if you use a single pin, uh, you go out, you set your 20. So, yeah, even when I'm shooting something at, at 15 yards, I'm using my 20-yard pin because you're not going to have a half an inch difference. And with the speed of these bows that we've got now, you know, you're shooting, you know, 350 feet a second on, on most um, compounds now, you know, if you're shooting 70 pounds. So, there's not a whole lot of variance. Even at 30 yards, you're only going to be maybe two inches off. I'm still going to be in the kill zone. But when you're when you're thinking about, you know, when you're not using a rangefinder, and man, I'll tell you what, this guy's from Colorado. Colorado is so difficult to judge distance because it's so much more open um, than what we have, you know, here in the Midwest or back in the East where I grew up. But when I've and I have forgotten my rangefinder, I didn't hunt with a rangefinder for years. But you get used to adjusting. If you golfed, you probably got really used to your short game and knowing what yardage looks like at that. But what I do is I'll get to the base of my tree where I'm going to be hunting from, and I'll have paced off my yards at home so I know how long my steps need to be to be a yard. And then I'll pace out a 20-yard tree, a 30-yard, 40-yard. And what I do is I'll take like a little like a little blaze orange, like you use for tracking, a little bit of the ribbon, tie it around a branch or put it somewhere with a tack on a tree, so I know my 20, 30, 40 yard. I don't like shooting whitetails out much more than 40 yards. I think, like the first question about how much they can duck, I think it's just for the, the humaneness of the shot. 
you, you really do need to know your limits. And elk is a lot bigger. You know, you're out west. Um, but because whitetails move faster um, than an elk, you really do have to allow for that. So, yeah, my 20, 30, and 40, I'll pace that off, mark something so then I don't have to think about it. And even if, and if your, your tape is off to your, off to your, excuse me, if it's straight ahead of you, you can kind of look in a circle around you in 20, 30, and 40 yards by what you've marked, and you can tell, you know, pretty much what that, that yardage is going to be. You won't be off by much. Well, anyhow, um, sorry, I'm going to get a drink here. It's that Midwest allergy season stuff. But today's special guest, um, you know, Don um, Cambridge and I, became acquainted through a friend. Um, we'll talk about him in just a little bit out on the West Coast. And he has a really unique background. So let me just kind of set the stage here. Don was born and raised in California and Northwest Washington. Uh, he received his bachelor's degree in behavioral science from San Jose State University, his MDiv as well as his uh, demon degree. Um, he was concentrating on grief and recovery uh, from Gordon uh, Conwell Theological Seminary. He spent 29, 29 years in the Army, most of which, and by the way, before you're even on here, thank you so much for your service, uh, most of which was with uh, 5th um, Special Forces Group stationed at Fort Campbell in Kentucky. Uh, he served as the 18th Charlie Engineer Sergeant, specializing in demolitions and explosives. Uh, he's a scuba combat diver, wow, with Operational Detachment 575 and 585. Uh, Don was wounded during um, Operation, excuse me, <clears throat> Sorry, my, my voice is just kind of doing some weird stuff today. OIF-2, ultimately serving four combat tours in Iraq. He retired as the team's technical advisor, warrant officer, um, recently served, now here we're kind of changing gears a little bit, recently served as church senior adult pastor in St. Augustine, Florida. Wow, that's rough. And now serving as associate pastor to the other campuses. Uh, he's a leader of missions trips to India, Ecuador, and France. Um, he's the author of Where the Heart Lies, um, first and second editions, um, Shrapnel, The Wounds I Took to War, and then Standing Stones, Grief Care and Grief Recovery for Christians in the 21st Century America. Um, family, Don and Karen have two adult children. Um, Connor works in disaster aid relief with the American Red Cross in Sydney for the School of the Deaf and Blind. And they've been married 27 years. You don't hear that much anymore. Also residing in St. Augustine, Florida. Um, running the Boston Marathon in 2009, led Don to seek some other endurance sports, which is what you're going to be hearing in just a little bit. I almost don't want to give it away, but let's just say that he, uh, he went to new heights, and you're going to hear more about that in just a minute. Uh, he spends a good portion of his free time these days writing and speaking about God's Word and encouraging um, his children through the, his own, over, um, own real life experiences. Whew, that's a mouthful. Don, you've been busy. Yeah, I'm tired just uh, listening to it. Uh, <laughs> I was busy and busy. Oh, man. So I'm trying to remember what year it was that we became acquainted. Do you remember what year it was? I think it was uh, soon after I retired in 2013. So probably late 2013 or 14, early 2014. And we had a mutual friend that kind of got us connected and... His name yeah. is Ron Hunt. We said we were going to talk about him, so maybe his ears are burning right yeah. now. I yeah. went to college with Ron. Um, we were really, really tight friends, probably just about best friends in college. And then he uh, mm -hmm. moved back out to the to the West Coast. And how did you guys become acquainted? Man, it's just so amazing. Uh, you know, from first sight, he and I were just really good friends. He is just, if you want joy in your life, just get next to Ron and it'll just 
you know, seep into you. And uh, he's been serving uh, faithfully as a church pastor for many years, as long as I've known him. Uh, so we met uh, through uh, a girl that I was dating at the time, and I, I was in between churches, and she was going to his church. And, uh, you know, I went, and he was a youth pastor at that time. And uh, I was so young enough to want to help in that department. So uh, just started joining him on Wednesday nights and Sundays. And, you know, that's what, uh, gosh, that was 19... 19- 92. Wow. I was going to say, he moved away because when I was touring in music, I was with a group called One, and he was helping to manage us back then. And so that would have been, because we were together from about 86 to 92, and shortly before the the, the group disbanded, he moved out to the West Coast. So, yeah. And you were right about being being positive. Yeah. You want encouragement, Ron's the guy you want to be around. He will pick you up right now. Yeah, I would encourage anybody to go and listen to some of his sermons. Um, just a great guy all around. Well, tell us a little bit about your family. Well, like you said, I've been married 27 years. You know, it's had its ups and downs like all of ours, you know, just sticking to it. Uh, you know, but there's something about growing old with someone that you've been with for so long. And uh, so we're starting to reap the benefits of these latter years. Uh, But I had no idea that my kids would go into kind of compassionate ministry, I guess you could call it, uh, serving the needy. So uh, my son, you know, graduated from Florida State University, concentrating on international studies, but got an internship and uh, found himself in Chicago working for the American Red Cross and um, disaster aid relief, uh, particularly uh, dealing with fires, you wouldn't believe how many there are home fires in Chicago, and uh, stayed uh, consequently. And we've had the the joy and privilege of going out to to visit him, and it's it's a pretty fun experience, especially with somebody that knows their way around. And my daughter, who worked for the nursery at our church, uh, she went to uh, University of North Florida, which is in Jacksonville, social work as her degree, and uh, just. You know, by by circumstance, she happened to know somebody that knew somebody that heard of a position available at the School of the Deaf and Blind. Uh, it's one of the second, it's one of two of the largest uh, deaf and blind schools in the country. Um, uh, put there many, many years ago. And so she started there uh, just after college and has been there ever since and kind of working her way up the ladder to be more in the management department. And my wife, she's all into herbs and gardens and making natural stuff instead of, you know, staying away from, you know, uh, prescription stuff. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that's she's definitely got a, a green thumb. And uh, other than that, just uh, enjoying the Florida lifestyle when we're not uh, melting. And you're like an hour south of Jacksonville, correct? Hour and 15 something. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I an was hour. down there. I was, you and I had a conversation about this. I was down there just under two years ago. I can't think of the name of the church there all of a sudden. You probably know it when I'm talking about Anastasia Baptist. Yeah. And Anastasia. Yeah. That was it. And a friend of yours, I didn't even realize you guys were friends with it, was someone who was really running us around and taking care of things. He was working with the men's ministry. And that was John Scripco, mm-hmm. which, 
you guys. I saw him, you know, what we're going to be talking about, um, well, I don't even want to set that stage yet, but there, there was some posts that he was commenting on, and I saw his name on there, and uh, just kind of neat to see how small this world is that we can be, you know, friends with someone that we've, you know, you and I personally have never come face to face, even though we've talked on the phone before. Uh, but man, he True. was uh, uh, one of your, your brothers, um, and he served, he was, yeah. he was in the Marines, oh. wasn't he? He was in the Marines, and that's how we sort of met at some sort of veteran event for the the church. And uh, he's got a certain intensity that I like about him and Mm -hmm. uh, just been friends for a long time. He tries to put together some of the men's events, and this one in particular with you. Unfortunately, I couldn't be at, but uh, I've heard nothing but good things. I I think they want you back. Oh, I'd I'd love to come back. (laughs) I would love to move there. I just loved it down there. I love that the smell of the, you know, the ocean air and just that whole life near the shore like that. There's just something about it that's so invigorating, but man. And I might have to take you out on my, my hiking trail that I think you'll know (laughs) what I'm talking about. Uh, just see how you do. Okay. Set the stage (laughs) hiking trail. Yeah. Oh, well, you're talking about underwater. No. Okay. No. You're scaring me there for a second. Yeah, we can do that trail. too. Hiking trail. What hiking trail would you be talking about that I would know? You stumped me. Well, you know, I had to go into a ravine to do some training. Oh, there we go. Yeah, I've had yeah. a little bit of experience with ravines. <laughs> Kind of dumb stuff. Um, yeah, we, we you're going to be hearing some about that coming up in a future episode too. And that one I've got to we've got to release that. But yeah, that was pretty nuts. Hey, so your background, um, special forces, and again, like I said, thank you for your service and to all the guys out there that served. You have my respect, and I appreciate you guys. Everything you sacrificed so much. Um, so give us a little bit about your background, how you got into the military, how you got into special forces, and just kind of walk us through up until what we're going to be, you know, the, the main thing we're going to be talking about today. Well, that's going to be a, a mouthful, but I'll, I'll try to condense it. Uh, you know, I was a, a high school dropout. You know, my parents uh, divorced, a lot of drinking involved. Uh, so I was probably 13, 14. My dad moved us out of you know, California up to Washington State to the very edge of the border, Bellingham, Washington. And uh, shortly after, you know, he wanted to be a, a fishing captain and uh, didn't work out. He left and went back to California. And I was just kind of a latchkey kid at that point. We had moved into a different home and, uh, you know, obviously just started having problems with school and uh, social relationships. And uh, my sister joined the military and uh, was stationed in Germany. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. They put me in tech school and some other things. And then I saw this brochure. Uh, you know, back then you had these brochures uh, talk about the Green Berets, oh, yeah. and uh, each each side of it had a different uh, occupational specialty: communications, medical, engineer. Um, along those lines, weapons. And uh, I, I really felt led towards the engineer side of things. Always liked uh, building stuff and uh, went down to the recruiter and uh, said, well, <laughs> you got a long way to go. You need a GED, you need these other things. So that 
gave me focus. And uh, from then on, uh, I was on this hunt to get qualified, and that's what I wanted to go and do. But uh, going down to the recruiter station and ultimately down to the assignment uh, desk, uh, I really didn't do that well in testing. So, and the special forces, your GT scores, they call it, uh, needs to be pretty high. Uh, you know, so you're good at math, you're good at technical things, learning quickly on your feet. Uh, still immature. I was 18, uh, 17 actually when I joined, uh, but left out on the, in June, the month of my birthday and, uh, was a truck driver, uh, stationed in Germany and, uh, took the test again, didn't do so well. And came back uh, to the States to finish out my three-year tour in California, Fort Ord, actually, not too far from home, and decided I wanted to go to college. And uh, ended up uh, going to San Jose State, and uh, my mother was working with some people, one of which was the first sergeant um, for a Special Forces Reserve Unit that was in the area. So I went and interviewed with them, and... Uh, they brought me in, and uh, they have a thing called a SF selection team. So you have to kind of train up to even get qualified, make it through the training. So they kind of put you on a team that can help you get in shape and all this stuff. So uh, I took the test again, this time as a college uh, almost graduate. Uh did well, so I was able to then get qualified to actually go to the Special Forces School. So I launched out in uh, February 91 uh, and was at Fort Bragg for a couple weeks. I think it's three weeks for selection, kind of winter time, uh, you know, doing everything that they wanted me to do, you know, rucking through the woods alone, uh, doing team events, carrying heavy stuff or pushing Jeeps for through the sand for hours. It's kind of like buds, you know, kind yeah. of like that kind of way of beating you up. And then uh, at the end, they put you in a room and they start counting off numbers. And if they call your number, you leave. And when they're all done, you look around and see what's left. And that's who's made it through selection. And then um, I was supposed to uh, start the actual qualification course, which would be six months of special forces school for engineers. And uh, they didn't have me on orders for it, but I was able to get on orders for it. But you're supposed to spend about six months before you go to the qualification course, just because your body needs to recover. But I found myself there the next week. So I got everything done in one semester, uh, the SFAS as they call it, and then the special forces Q course. And I was back to uh, my unit in California, 12th Special Forces Group, and um, finished college with my degree and started deploying with uh, 12th Group. But back in those days, there wasn't a lot of money. There wasn't really uh, a use for us as much as there is today. I mean, we we depend quite heavily upon our reserves and National Guard, especially with the, the wars and all that. So they are mono we mono with us our brothers and sisters in every way. So uh, because it was not a whole lot going on, I thought I would uh, help out some recruiters. And uh, they spotted that I was a Green Beret. And uh, next thing you know, another recruiter is recruiting me uh, 
to go back in uh, because he said I had everything. All I had to do was step through the door. And I felt like I needed to do some things. I wanted some specialty schools. I wanted some good deployments and do it for three years. Uh, so three years turned into altogether 29 years. Wow. And so you did how many tours overseas? Was it four? So uh, I started going to the Middle East back in 96. Uh, so 96, we were already in Pakistan and Yemen and uh, Kuwait. And really, we were the, you know, desert rats, as you might mm-hmm. think of them. You know, we just know everything desert. And so um, by the time the Iraq war came about and Afghanistan, uh, every sergeant at some point has to go away for three years as some sort of instructor or uh, pull your duty. So they took me to uh, Key West, Florida, to the combat diver school where I was an instructor for three years. And just about six months after I left my team, 575-585, and training with these guys forever in the, in the, in, in the desert, all of a sudden, you know, 9-11 happens. And my guys, specifically that building, when George Bush said, you're going to hear from all of us soon, mm-hmm. it was that building that that's at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, where all these guys were spending years before that training in the desert that early in October, they were in the mountains of Afghanistan, um, you know, and pretty much took it to them in those first couple weeks and months. And then whatever prolonged after that was whatever it is, regular army getting involved and all the rest. But I was supposed to be with that team, but I was in Key West. So I'm watching all this on CNN. One of my close friends was one of the first ones I saw as a casualty, uh, damn predatory on CNN. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to get back to it, but you know, I had to do what I had to do. And then, uh, I would say, uh, right before I was coming back to Fort Campbell, I called my buddy, Kevin Moorhead, who's now the team sergeant for 585. By now, they're in uh, Iraq, you know, OIF-1, you know, the invasion, and uh, they're in Al-Ramadi. And I'm saying, hey, I'm coming back. You ready for me? He goes, yeah, I can't wait. You know, this is our last day here. We'll see you soon. Uh, I find out the next day he gets killed, and uh, they're going after a high-value target. And they got in the courtyard and got ambushed and uh, shot up. And uh, next thing you know, I'm at Fort Campbell at his memorial and uh next thing I'm I'm finishing up my tour uh with the combat dive school and then uh I'm back in the team room uh minus Kevin Moorhead and a couple guys got wounded but they had to go back you know just six months later to OIF2 so they assigned me a locker you know it was like one day I was there and then the next day three years later I'm there and all of a sudden, Kevin's not there, and some other guys aren't there. A few things have changed, but they gave me his locker. And it was like time had stood still. I opened this locker, you know, and it's all this stuff where he left his cell phone, well, you know, his his wallet, you know. Just we didn't really know how to process things for for guys that got in KIA then. Uh, so I, you know, I adopted his helmet, his body armor. Still had blood in the helmet and the body armor mm-hmm. collar, and. uh so I volunteered to go advance party for the next OIF, give these guys, you know, a little bit of a break. I wasn't there in Mosul two weeks 
that when I brought the team in, we were making a routine run back to take the other team back to Diamondback, which is the kind of the airstrip area, uh, major area of the other side of Mosul, uh, so they could launch back out back to the U.S. that we got hit by an IED. My vehicle specifically, all the vehicles were armored except this one. And so uh, it took a, a side hit, call it like a grape shot, you know, just flinging shrapnel at mm-hmm. the vehicle. And uh, it had hit everything. I got a picture that just looks like it's, you know, uh, Swiss cheese. And there's just this one area around my plastic door. I the door isn't there in the picture. I don't, I'm sure it's just shredded, but it hit me in the back of the head, the side of the head, took out two inches of my breaker artery on my right arm, paralyzing it, uh, went unconscious, uh, woke up, got in another vehicle with Paul, my, my junior, who was up in the turret. He got one piece of shrapnel in his ear and was just in great agony. And they're working on him and they transferred us both to a, a medevac and you know one second you know i'm a warrior on the ground the next second i'm on a table with all my bloody uniform and gear weapon and everything on 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 the floor off in the corner and you know they ask me all kinds of questions and uh next thing you know i'm on a helicopter and i you know they put me under and they did a couple major surgeries one uh a brachial artery bypass on my arm where they take the vein out of your leg and put it in your your arm and uh I'm just fortunate I didn't get hit a lot worse, but uh, the piece in the back of my head had to be taken care of in Germany, and it was a like a tenpenny nail head, mm. like a carpenter's uh, right. nail, the head of it, and that was uh, lodged on my vertebral artery and uh, spinal cord, and uh, one millimeter difference would have been just lights out. So they carefully took that out. Doctor, when I woke up, said, hey, I thought you might want to have this. Had a little jar, and it was this nail head. I have it to this day. So I came back to the States, and uh, we lost a few more people. Went to some memorials, recovered. Uh, they put me in the office. I couldn't do it for too long. I wanted to go back to a team. My arm wasn't working too good, but, you know, <laughs> they said all you had to be able to do was put a helmet on, throw a grenade, and pull a trigger. Well, I could do all that. <laughs> But, you know, you really need both hands to do a bunch, you know, especially with all the optics and what you have now. So I got back to the team and volunteered to go uh, dance party again because the team had just gotten back. And uh, I thought everything would be different, Uh, get back on the horse, you know, uh, better just to get it over with. And, man, it was like going right, right back into the same bad idea, getting in a vehicle, just rolling down the road, hoping nothing happened. But we made it through that deployment, and that was Bakuba. Uh, did a lot of exploding, um, demoing unexploded ordnance, and uh, looked for high-value targets and all the rest, and building shoot houses. And then um, my next deployment, I was a warrant officer. I went off to warrant officer school, came back, now I'm the team chief for the team, and uh, went back to Tikrit. Uh, area near Tikrit, uh, uh, where we were for eight months, and we launched out to the desert eventually to find all the, uh, you know, the supply lines, and uh, got in a really bad firefight out there, and uh, lost, you know, some of our Iraqi counterparts, uh, but we made it through, and 
Actually, I don't, I, I can't claim we changed the tide of the war, but no one was going out in the desert. You know, we're all focusing on the cities. And, um, but once we got out there, we started uncovering a lot of caches, supply lines. Uh, they call them spider holes. You'd find, you know, foreign fighters in all these little caves and dugouts. And, you know, the word got around in the desert all the way to Syria saying, hey, they're killing you in the desert. So uh, I want to say tactics changed a little bit. We started going, that was 2007, 2008, one of the deadliest years. Uh, Iraq. And I came back and I did one more tour in uh, Baghdad. I was the uh, advisor for 2nd Brigade Iraqi Special Forces. And I would travel around with the general to the different cities and towns that I survived going, man, this is weird. And um, I was it. I was the only person that he was talking to. I'd do a report every night and try to figure out. And a second brigade covers all of Iraq. First brigade covers Baghdad. So I had the rest of Iraq. Then I came back uh, November-ish of 2010 and uh, stayed in uh, Fort Campbell until uh, leaving, starting the out process in mid-2012 uh, and then out in 2013 with uh, like 90 days of accrued leave so you and i had a little bit of a conversation just a couple of days ago just kind of walking through um what we're going to be talking about here in a minute and i don't i don't know how first of all you know you you walk right back into the battle again i cannot tell you how much respect that i have but i can't imagine also the kind of wounds you know that 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 left you with not only physically but mentally because you can't go into something like that and I know, like, some of my friends who were in, in Vietnam, um, we had a chance to talk. And he says, you know, there's almost a peace. It sounds, he says, it sounds really strange. He says, once the battle starts, there's almost a peace that comes over you because it's what you train to do. Is that accurate? Well, I chronicle it in my book in great detail. Uh, man, it went from zero to 60. Like, you know, you're just used to patrolling. You know, you're out in the desert can't see anything, nothing's happening. And then all, you know, what breaks loose and it's just coming from everywhere, pinging and breaking. And the radios are starting to go crazy with, you know, chatter of Iraqis and your guys saying, uh, you know, contact, right, contact, right. And, uh, just get your door gunner, your turret gunners are firing off the 50 cows in the sixties. And it just becomes deafening. I've got, 50 cal casings falling in my lap and my neck. And uh, all of a sudden we're just at this bridge and I'm just saying, go, go, go. Cause uh, when you're in an ambush, you're taught to get through it, you know, don't stall in it, get to the other side of it. But the other side of it was the bridge was an onslaught uh, coming from that way. So they call it a horseshoe shaped ambush coming from everywhere, but behind us. And, uh, I raced back. Uh, we got hit really hard by some really uh, precise shots to the windshields and the turret gunner. And uh, we had just uh, two vehicles came across with me and everyone else was still back there. We had like 53 vehicles. We didn't plan on that, but all Iraq came out to support uh, different units. And uh, I just had to be in charge of this, this that morning. And uh, we just took them all and uh, came back across the bridge and uh, they didn't know what to do. So we were telling them, all right, 
get out of the, uh, you know, the dirt and underneath your truck. They're all just underneath the vehicles, you know, hiding around the berm. Go take out that village, not take it out, but go search it and, you know, go through it. And so they had that mission. I turn around and all my trucks, uh, whether it be the 101st Airborne that was attached to us or our Fifth Special Forces Humvees were all back over the bridge. Now they're in a semicircle. And I joined up over on the right flank. And uh, all of a sudden, you just have automatic air en route. You know, you got helicopters calling you. You got uh, F-6s calling you. Uh, you know, hey, where do you need it? Where's your location? And helicopter guys saying, I'm going to strafe the berm. I'm going to strafe the wadi. Uh, uh, and then they're launching rockets. And uh, this f six or whatever it was, uh, did this, uh, this really low maneuver where he just screams low overhead and pulls straight up. Uh, and then every vehicle is returning fire and, uh, you're just hearing whizzes and bangs. And, uh, uh, I have to get out of the vehicle, one vehicle, uh, Iraqi vehicle. One of our counterparts was in Humvee, uh, went up onto this knoll and he ran out of ammunition. So he's just standing there defiantly in his turret. And he's uh, just standing there, and we're trying to call him back. He won't come back. And then finally, you know, uh, I'm concentrating on, on a few other things. And uh, there's an uh, – in between the five vehicles, I'm standing. I'm hearing the whizzing. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden, an RPG round lands in front of me. And I just look at it like, I can't believe it. <laughs> and then before I could think of anything else, another one lands. And then a third one lands. And, you know, it's common that you tape up, you know, the pins in your grenades or your RPG rounds, but they had forgotten to take them out or whatever, but uh, they didn't explode. And then wow. right about then, this vehicle pulls up and it's got a, a Iraqi wounded that they slide out of the turret into between our vehicles. And my driver was the medic and he's trying to work on him, but he got shot in the head and uh, there's nothing he could do. And... Uh, you know, pretty much had to let him go, and they took him away. And then uh, QRF, quick reactioning force of five or six hundred first vehicles show up, saying, "Where do you want us?" You know, so it's just, yeah, I didn't feel any uh, nervousness or fear. It was more chaos and just loud. And uh, I remember just looking at these flashes uh, coming at me, and then I would hear this whip by my head, and I just thought it was so weird that I could see it, but not hear it, you know, until it got to me. So you're, you're kind of in that state, but you will experience it after the battle. You know, at some point, uh, a day later that night, you'll, and it'll freak you out because it has to happen. Your yeah. body has to yep. have that experience. And one of the things I've talked about before is grief. And, you know, you can try to put grief off for as long as possible, but at some point you have to walk into grief or it'll just keep biting you. That's why I wrote that book and studied what I did because it can it can be uh, paralyzing, handicap you, and you'll forget that it's something you're grieving. Next thing you know, you have drinking problems or you have memory issues or you have a, a really bad temper or you're isolating. You know, go back and think about some things. Oh, both my parents, like back to back, my buddies in military, you know, I never – they don't teach you to grieve that stuff. So you really have to process it. And, and you guys I kind of detail that. You guys have a real connection. Like I have a couple of SF buddies and they, their brotherhood 
is a lifetime thing. Even, I mean, it's just, they're just brothers. I mean, it's like some of the closest. And the only thing I can even compare it to, because I, I, I did music for the military years ago. I was at Pan Moon Jam and a couple of different places. And, you know, cool. being on the road, you know, I had friends, you know, on tour that your tour buddies, they kind of become a brotherhood or my hunting buddies, you know, when we're out there in the mountains or doing whatever. But I was speaking for a game dinner two nights ago. And before it started, a couple of guys came over and they said, hey, what are you going to be speaking on tonight? And I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to do something new tonight. You know, it's going to be a little different because I've spoken in this area a couple of times. And I said, I'm going to be talking about brotherhood. I'm going to be talking about how, you know, dangerous men don't walk alone. We need each other. And they both looked at each other and they said, we were just talking about this five minutes ago. And they couldn't talk. They got all choked up and teared up. They were both military guys. And they said, you know, it's, it's, it's true. That brotherhood never goes away. And uh, when you get out of the service, he said, it's different because there you had that incredible closeness. And all of a sudden, when you lose your, your, your team members that you're close to like that, it really begins to affect you because you become family. Yeah. Yeah, you leave the military. They take your, you know, you had a card that used to get you in everywhere, computers, on the base. And when it's gone, you know, the guys can't really tell you what they're doing anymore and you can't really see what's going on through, you know, computers and, you know, uh, yeah, it was a difficult, difficult transition. Uh, but as long as we understand what it is, uh, I think we can do it more healthy. We're mourning, you know, we're mourning our loss and guys don't figure that out. They just start going off, you know, uh, into some pretty difficult lifestyles, uh, but see it for what it is. And, try to stay in touch and connect uh, with your guys and stay there just because you're not in doesn't mean you won't forever be brothers because and sisters you will be. And uh, you could be apart 15 years and see each other. And it's like no time has passed. You and I were talking and you had mentioned about, um, you know, some different friends and things that you had lost and that kind of became a motivator for where I want to kind of take this, steer the ship a little bit now. I was I was upstairs in my house. I was working out. I got a little workout room up there, and I was trying to find – I watch podcasts and all kinds of stuff. But I was watching this thing, and it was called Ultimate Survival Everest. And it was talking about Mount Everest and what it takes to climb this thing. And as I was, as I was watching this, you came to mind because when, when Ron and I got to talking, he goes, Hey, have you been following Don's journey? And I said – what are you talking about? He said, dude, he's, he's climbing Mount Everest. I went, he's doing what? I said, yeah, <laughs> he's, he's climbing Mount Everest. I, I mean, there's only a handful of people on this entire planet that have ever even attempted that. And, you know, and, and, and even way less that have, have ever made it, you know, all the way up. So, you know, how did, how do you, first of all, what drove you to want to do it? And how do you prepare for something like that? Uh, so... You know, when you're used to a lot of adrenaline, you know, and you get out in the civilian world, you got to find other ways to do that and to find camaraderie. And But in 97, me and Kevin Moorhead, good friends on our team, going on deployment, read this book into thin air. John Krakauer had written about Scott Fisher and Rob Hall, terrible Everest experience. Uh, but it motivated us to say, you know, we don't have the money. We're young and in shape. I bet you if we got up to base camp, maybe we could get on one of these expeditions. So that's what we said, and we talked about it often. Then I lost Kevin in 2003. And, uh, you know, what I, the way that I used to look at Everest was 
they just look miserable. You know, five breaths, one step. I don't want anything to do with that. But something changed after reading that book and then watching movies and when lost Kevin. Uh, and then ultimately my junior, Paul, uh, I don't know, ever just kept popping in my, my head because I felt like I, we promised to do this and they can't do this anymore, but they would love to experience it through us. And, you know, it means you got to live twice as much because, uh, they sacrificed twice as much. And so, uh, it wouldn't leave my head. You know, I, I said, no, I'm not going to do this. I can't do this. In 2011, I put out something on Facebook saying, I'm going to go put a, a flag on that mountain for, for my buddies. And, you know, time went by, uh, 2013, uh, I found myself going up to base camp, uh, because we have special forces guys in Nepal and they helped me get on this trek up there. But I didn't make it but to 12,000 feet, like two or three days into it, uh, ended up with, uh, couldn't breathe, suffocating, uh, high altitude, pulmonary edema setting in. So I went back down the hill and said, well, I guess that's that. And then the next year, I just, you know, you, altitude's different. You just can't uh, bully your way up into altitude. So I just learned, you know, you got to be hydrated. You got to eat the right things. You got to have your endurance a certain place. You can't over uh, exert yourself going up a little bit at a time. Uh, and so I went back in 2014 and I got up to base camp and uh, barely kind of dizzy, got to say uh, some words, you know, dedicating this to my buddy Kevin, but I really meant all our guys. Uh, and I looked at, you know, the, the ice fall and said, okay, I've been here. And I went back down and uh, had a really hard time coming down. I got pretty sick, but then uh, I thought I was done and it, it just wouldn't leave me alone. And then uh, there was a terrible avalanche that killed many. And then there was a terrible earthquake I remember that, that killed many. And then uh, the pandemic. And then, uh, so the mountain was closed for on and off for several years. And uh, about two or three years ago, uh, it was just getting bigger and bigger. It was like two things happened to you. You're either fine with base camp. Just had to keep going. And, uh, you know, but I had to put together the resources and the training and do all the studies. So I just, you know, I live in Florida. So there's nowhere to train. I got a 40% inclined treadmill and I have a ravine that we talked about earlier mm -hmm. that you got to go downhill, down into a ravine to get any altitude, to get any up and down. So there's this, you know, two mile loop, three mile loop that I would go around, get about 3000 feet in, you know, uh, accumulatively, uh, definitely not Colorado, which I preferred to go straight up, you know, for hours, but I didn't have that option. And I do some mountain bike trails and then i got a trainer uh out of uh, slovenia who's a high altitude professor trainer endurance athlete and he just put together a schedule for me that put me in the right heart rate zone not overdoing it and just six days a week every week uh i was out three to four or five hours a day eating you know uh proteins and uh, nothing bad for you and uh, getting my body to learn how to uh, burn fat instead of muscle and, uh, you know, anything else. Because you have endless stores of fat. Even if you're overweight, if you're really skinny, you have endless stores of fat. So, so I train my body to do. I train for a year. 
I bought the equipment and, you know, you have to buy all the right stuff. I mean, it's got to be SPF 50, this and that, and several pairs of gloves and the right boots. And, you know, anything can happen up there. You know, 60 below, you got to be ready for that. 100 mile per hour winds, got to be ready for that. Don't have any climbing experience whatsoever, but for some reason I have to go up there. Crampons and all the rest. And uh, so I found a company that uh, wanted to invest in me and give me a shot. And uh, so on the 3rd of April of this year, I uh, was in Kathmandu meeting my team for the first time. And uh, you're right. I would say there's about 6,000 that have ever climbed Everest uh, and some multiple times, but 6,000 individuals. And then, no, I want to say 4,000, 6,000 total, 4,000 uh, uh, have, have climbed it, period. And then Americans, only 741. And then I was just thinking recently, for those of us that were 58, I bet you it's probably 20. <laughs> you, yeah. So I, I, I'm out of a select group. And, uh, you know, you just take it easy. You go slow. Uh, you try to stay healthy. And drink a lot of water, and um, I, I'll continue the story. But for now, that's kind of how I got to where I am. Yeah, that's a whole other mindset. I, I used to climb a place called Crow Pass in Alaska. I used to take groups of guys up there every year. And, you know, I don't know how many thousand feet. I know, you know what's interesting is you've got Denali, uh, Mount McKinley up there. And I think, if I remember right, I think it's 20,360 feet. It's actually the, the biggest mountain as far as starting from sea level. But, like, when you're doing Everest, you're exactly. not starting. You're way above sea level. What's, what is base camp? What are you at? That is so true. I've, I've heard that about Denali, that you're actually climbing all 20-whatever thousand feet of it. For Everest, you fly into Lukla, one of the most dangerous airports, right? It's at, uh, I want to say it's at 10 10,000, and then you walk down to 8,000 on your way to Everest, spend the night, and then uh, the next day you end up in Namche Bazaar, this side cliff uh, trading post old town on a, on a cliff. That's about 11, uh, 10 or 11. And then, uh, you know, every day you go 1,500 feet higher, and then you spend two days at some point before you keep going until you get to base camp at 17.5. I know that when I was taking these guys up Crow Pass, even with, with something small like that, I always took extra stuff with us. Of course, you've got, you know, all your, your protein and carbs and everything you're going to need. But we would take, I would take like an, an extra bivy sack and sleeping bag in case someone, you know, got theirs soaked. Because you have to cross water. There were some ice bridges and different things. But this one guy, we're going up, you know, the switchbacks. And if you don't know what switchbacks are, they're like Z-shaped. And they, when you have a, a mountainside that, you know, it's passable, but it's, it's so steep, you have to cut these grooves, you know, going back and forth to make it up. And he, uh, I had, I think I had my Gregory Denali backpack with me. And that's why I had it. You know, I forget how many cubic inches. It's huge. It's probably, you're familiar with that. And this guy's sleeping bag came undone he didn't have it attached right or something and we watched that thing go about about 1200 feet bouncing down the mountain from we had just come we're on our way up and i and he was like oh my gosh i gotta go get that and i said no we're not doing that <laughs> so i just gave yeah. him the spare but you I mean i'm sure you guys have to pack you know extra things in case you know you and i were talking about that episode excuse me, that I was talking about that ultimate survival on Everest and that woman gets her crampons stuck 
in one of those mm-hmm. ladders going to go. Oh, it was like 10 stories below where it dropped down. Oh, mm-hmm. I just, dude, I, I have no idea. Um, what it must be like when you were doing this stuff. I mean, how would you compare that to, I mean, the feelings you would have being between battle and then doing something like climbing the ice falls or going over these crevasses with these ladders, you're just tied in to look like they could come apart at any second. Yeah. uh, So going back to one of the themes that you talked about is that camaraderie and being together. Uh, I wanted that. And we had that, you know, in base camp, you know, we spent a lot of time in base camp because it snowed so much we couldn't get out of it. Uh, there was an avalanche. It took out part of the, the ice fall, so we had to wait extra time. But when it was game on, time to do our rotations up through the ice falls, all the way to camp three, back down to uh, base camp, and then the second rotation all the way up. Man, it was just me, me and my Sherpa. Everyone else is gone. They all have their own paces. Most of the guys... I was 18 years older than the oldest guy of the team besides me and 25 years on average older. So I'm just slower. Well, you did us old guys uh, proud. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So uh, it was weird. All of a sudden I'm just in the dark alone with my headlamp going through Mm -hmm. the ice fall, which is just strange. You know, I, I, you know, the first thing you get to is crampon point and then you walk over and it's a 40, 50 foot, vertical ice shelf that you have to heave yourself up and uh no one's talking you know everybody's just trying to get places and uh there's ropes people are clipping in and uh, you get your turn and you know you don't see the rest of the guys after that but you have a sherpa i call it more of a porter the guy that has some of your stuff that goes with you has some experience but he spoke no english maybe two words mm. So it took me 12 hours to get through that, that ice fall, you know, at one o'clock in the morning, didn't get there till one o'clock in the afternoon to camp one. And it just surprised me how fast it seemed like the sun came up and I wasn't any further. It's just an obstacle course of ice and crevasses and, uh, ladders. Like you said, none of them are flat. None of them are straight. All of them are broken or old. The ropes, you know, we're all frozen into the ice. So they're all very challenging. You're either going up or down and trying to keep your balance. So the first time through was I, the second time, I think seven hours, but 12 hours the first time. What was it like and looking at that? Uh, just a second. What was it like looking at that? How long did you think the first time it would take you to actually to get across the ice fall? How long did you think it would take? And then in reality, you said the first time it was 12 hours. It was supposed to take six, seven hours. And, um, by the time I first looked at my watch, it was six or seven hours. So uh, it just goes by so quickly in a really strange way. But, you know, you're constantly worried about because you're looking straight up at the the ridge of the mountains around you that have just snow, you know, uh, shelves just teetering up there. And any of these seracs, where it's basically just two-story ice cubes that are hanging by nothing that you go through at night because it's cold. And the warmer it gets, the more has, we just lost three Sherpa that were going through the ice fall on a track, took them out. So you're constantly thinking about moving, getting out of the way of anything. And uh, so, you know, I, I didn't really think about anything other than just wanting to get through safely and was thankful that I don't care how long it took. I got through, 
safely, but it was alone. And then get to camp one, I see the guys for a little bit and they go to camp two. We stay there for about five days. Then we go up to camp three and then back down to base camp. Uh, you know, I'm the last one coming in on all of these things. And I didn't have that uh, companionship and it really, really hurt. And on the way back up, um, we started on oxygen at the base of the Lutzi face. So you get done with coming back through the ice fall. This took about six or seven hours this time. Feeling pretty strong. Get to camp two. You stay over. You go all the way to camp two from base camp all the way to camp two, which is going through the Coom, uh, Western Coombe. They call it the valley. Kind of a high valley, right? at 22,000 feet. Getting up to uh, camp two, which had a, you know, uh, it's a big sprawling camp right under the base of Everest and in the Coombe is when you finally get to see Everest. You can't see it from base camp. And uh, it's just a gentle rise going to camp two. You're going through some more, uh, you know, uh, steps where you have to do some rappelling and climbing to get to camp two. And then there's a kitchen tent and dining tent and we spend a couple days there. But uh, then we launched into Lhotse Face. So Lhotse is the fourth tallest mountain in the world. Uh, and it sits next to uh, Everest. So you walk up, you know, a gentle rise to the Lhotse face where the weather can just be like change in a minute. You could either, like I did, sunburn almost third degree, the bottom of my inside of my lip, because you can't put anything there. The, the reflection off the snow and ice and the intensity of the rays are just so powerful. And then it can just all of a sudden fog over and wind come and uh, go to 20 below. So we get to the Lhotse face and it's just straight up and uh, we put on oxygen. My guy's looking at it funny, like playing with my rig and uh, we start up and uh, I immediately am falling behind and the rest of the guys are going. I, I get up an hour later, freezing my hands at about halfway. I had to get out some hand warmers and warm them up. But man, I just couldn't believe how steep it was. It was just nonstop. I mean, straight up steep and uh i get to camp three uh i jump into a tent with another guy um and you stay on your mask the whole night uh on level one the lowest level and then we wake up the next morning and my shirt looks at it and he says he doesn't say anything he just is surprised because i have half a bottle left it should be gone and i said oh, don't worry about it just put another bottle on and let's go so to cut to the chase make a long story short the oldest guy on the team trying to make this happen. I have a, a faulty regulator, which sits on the bottle. Oh. You have four positions and you open it, you know, for full volume at four. And that lasts about four or five hours. So I'm on my second bottle trying to go up to camp three and uh, I'm lagging behind. I come to the yellow band, which is just a monster of, of ascension and uh, a lot bigger than people would think it's just really scrambling up this yellow rock and uh you're pulling yourself up with your sender and uh got your crampons on tip of one rock to the next and uh it started getting dark and i could see these four tents ahead of me between camp three and camp four which is on the top of the mountain in the death zone and it gets dark it fogs over starts getting windy and snowing and i get to the point where i can't even walk any further i'm just like if i could make it to that you know, temporary tent site. And the trip is like thinking we're going all the way up. And I'm like, we're going there. And uh, he didn't get it until I came off rope 
my carabiner and I dove into that that tent, which was like this abandoned storage tent. You know, it's a regular tent you'd sleep in, but it had old oxygen bottles in it, old sleeping mats. Uh, it looked like uh, somebody abandoned it. And that's where I was for the night. And uh, the next morning, looked at my, my tank that I had on four. It was still full of oxygen. So I'm not getting any of the supplemental oxygen. I can't get a hold of anybody. Uh, the, the other guys are at camp four. And, uh, the next morning I get on that radio and I'm like, I just need to talk to somebody with English. And, uh, one thing, you know, leads to another, uh, my Sherpa gives me his rig and he launches me out by myself to camp four. So now I'm going over the Geneva spur with no one other, but myself just, uh, going up the last 800 feet to camp four over the Geneva spur around the corner. I run into a buddy that's come down saying, Hey, I can't go any further. I'm going down. I see a body being taken down, and this is what I'm seeing for the first time coming around the corner to Camp 4. And I could breathe better because the oxygen is working, and I get into Camp 4. These guys have been there for 24 hours, and I'm going to have four hours uh. once I get in there to rehydrate. I didn't have any food, any water in that temporary camp, so I'm up there in the deficit. There's some videos that just look at me as being pathetic. And then uh, – you know, I'll continue if you want, but uh, from there I got the short amount of time, and at six thirty, seven o'clock, we launched up the the last piece for three thousand feet, and I just don't remember a lot of it. But there was a body on the right, frozen, and we started up the hill. Wow. Another body on the balcony, kept on going, and uh, it took me twelve hours to get to the south summit, and now I can see pretty much the Cornus uh, Ridge, which is basically just a flat section up and down the last hundred meters high of the summit. I run into my guide and he goes, how's your power? I'm like, not so good. You know, I just came up this mountain and uh, I don't know what it's doing with my, my oxygen back there. Honestly, there's no way those bottles should have lasted that long if they were on the right setting. But anyway, uh, he says it's another three hours, well, three hours. Uh, and I look at him, like, it's like an hour tops. They just ran into all my guys that said it was, you know, an hour. And he goes, well, it looks farther than it is. But I think he was really saying that to get me to go down because it was really three hours round trip back to him at the South Summit. And so I looked at the summit and it wasn't about reaching it as much as it was, could I? And for all the heartache and hardship that I've went through and deficit to get where I was, uh, at the very spot that Rob Hall had to make the call to either keep going or come down, they decided to keep going and they lost their lives on the South Summit and uh, Scott Fisher a little bit lower on the balcony. And um, I could do it. I, it was two stone throws away and it was more about um, could I? And uh, I felt like I conquered that. And uh, hey, guys, Kevin, Paul, here we are. Uh, we did it. And uh, the view was spectacular with the curvature of the earth. The weather was good. Uh, but, man, it was a monster going down. I mean, no joke. I had no experience, so I don't know what I'm going to need going down. But it's like walking backwards down a ladder mm -hmm. uh, or frontwards down a ladder. Like uh, you have to rappel all the way down or uh, abseil, which is kind of a rope type around your front. You're just walking down. Uh, but it's like doing – squats the entire way and by the very bottom it you know camp four was like 200 meters away and it took me hours to get to it just i know five from climbing, breaths at a time i know from climbing going up 
was for me was much easier than the journey back down because that my my toes, my feet, my knees, my thighs, you know, your hip flexors, everything are, are being used differently coming down because we don't usually go down like that, especially that far. And you, no. oh man, yeah. So yeah, I didn't train for that part. No, and how, yeah, no one does. So you took was it flags for your friend up there, friends? Well, I was going to, but you know. Uh, it's amazing what you won't take, you know, hypoxia setting in. I even found an extra pair of hand warmers would be too heavy. You know, I didn't want anything extra. Uh, uh, I was going to bring my, my helmet cover. I just thought I was, what if I didn't make it, you know, yeah. it was like, I didn't want to bring something that, but it was most important that I was there through my eyes, yeah. uh, what they're seeing yes. and what they're experiencing What's and it? to give to all of you guys. I was going to say, I think when you and I talked, when you were up there, you were thinking about, you know, guys, this is for you. You wanted to be able to see something for them that they had always wanted to see. Yeah. So that was on my heart and in my, my mind and, uh, you know, saying prayers about it up there and uh, felt closure, you know, like uh, wanted to get it done. And mm-hmm. uh, that's well, what I me- want to do. And, and no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. I was, when you're talking about closure and, you know, the book you had written, what's the one on grief? What's it called again? Uh, grief care and grief recovery for uh, <laughs> 21st century Americans well, in my, the 21st century America. My question, you know, <laughs> going back, stones. you know, going through everything from the alcohol when you were a kid that you were exposed to with family stuff, you know, the, the the different, you know, how many deployments and losing friends and the firefights and then, you know, stuff like this. The, you, I, I was watching you, you know, post everything on social media and I'd be, you know, type trying to type you words of encouragement and praying for you when you're going up and down. You know, and we were just, I was kind of interacting with a journey that I think would be so cool. I don't think I ever want to do it, but I wanted to be able to pray for you. But my prayer for you started, you know, however long ago that was when Ron and and I, you know, or Ron introduced me to you. And, you know, some of our phone calls, we were just walking through difficult stuff. You know, there's, when we go through a lot of things, our thoughts can really get out of whack. And sometimes we need that brother in our life to help us to put it into a perspective so that we can make it through it. Because it's like climbing a mountain and we have to have those people in our life that can help us make it from, you know, point A to point B to point C. And sometimes you have to go back to A again, just like you were going up the mountain because there's other things God goes, wait a second, there's some more healing I want to do here. So one of my, my last two questions is this, you know, how did and is God healing, you know, your wounds that, you know, all these things that we just talked about, what's he been doing in your life to help heal these? Okay. Uh, You know, I, I'm doing a, a study tonight, and First uh, uh, Samuel chapter 18, uh, kind of the first verse or two, it says, God knitted Jonathan's soul to David's, and they're forever friends. And, you know, that close kind of, that's how I feel about Ron. I mean, it's just, we have this knitting of souls. And um, what I learned about, Everest is I didn't want to take anybody with me in case one of us didn't do so well, we'd have to leave the other behind. But, you know, that's a world perspective. You know, I wish I would have taken someone with me that wherever we get together is where we get. And then we go down together. And uh, I think that 
we kind of forget we're these lone soldier Christians out here on this planet, but God has given us each other and the world needs yes. to see how we don't, uh, how we, how we love each other because you can, you know, preach the gospel and you can do all these things, but, and you can, you know, they want to see what you would be like to each other. And, you know, I'm just as guilty as everyone else. I'm an accessory to stepping over bodies to get to where I wanted to get. Uh, and But those were somebody's partners. Those were somebody's team. And they just kept going. Uh, and if I had somebody with me, um, they could be counseling me. They could be encouraging me, looking for signs and symptoms. And uh, so I would do it again. But I would do it with uh, – a friend and God has placed in our lives people that we're not investing in that we feel like we need to shy away from because, Oh, it's getting too, you know, intimate, close. Uh, you know, I don't want them to see my, all my, you know, dirty laundry, uh, go out on a limb and get close as you can to these people that you feel God is, you know, um, put in your life, but, uh, to get through grief and, and whatnot is uh, we think that we have to do it. And if there's anything else that's true, the only one that is capable of grief recovery is Jesus. Yeah. I mean, he is the only one it's a, it's a death is unnatural. It's going on to a spiritual place. So uh, in my book, I kind of talk about, you know, having something that you hold on to, like in the military, we have these bracelets, right? You know, we remember them. The thing that helps hurts us from moving on is we think they're being forgotten, but we don't, we don't forget people. And you got to hold on to something, whether it's a picture and you make that, that one thing Say, Lord, heal me through this bracelet, heal me through this picture, heal me through this Everest climb. And allow him to be the author and finisher of that grief story. And you're gonna you're gonna be mad, you're gonna be sad, you'll have ups and downs, but there's a process that you have to go through and on the end he'll meet you and uh you know re- restore you to even better than you were before. You know, something that I, I'm listening to as you're talking through this whole trip up Everest, your whole life, I mean everything you were just saying is an amazing uh testament to, you know, not only what the human body is capable of, but what it's capable of when God, you know, is at the helm. And I was thinking, you can't rush the journey. Like we said, sometimes you have to go up, then you come back down a little bit. You've got to, you know, get your your lungs and everything ready. But the truth is that God knows what it is that we need to complete the mission that he has for us. Everybody listening to this, God has a mission for you. And don't just think, well, and these bad things, you know, that happened to me are, are bad things. No, God knows what it is that you need to understand to be able to get to where he wants you to go. And the other thing is that I, I'm picking up, you talked about there were times you were alone, but even being with someone, if they're not speaking the same language, just having that brotherhood, someone with you um, that you can lean on, you know, maybe they were carrying the oxygen that, that you didn't have room for, or maybe you, they were the doctor or they're bringing extra food, whatever it is that we need the strength of all these other brothers around us and their talents to be able to complete this amazing journey and purpose that God has for us. 
So, yeah. buddy, I wish I had more time today because I just, and we'll have you back. I want to hear so much more with this. But if you were to leave one thing with the guys out there that you really want them to understand about walking with each other, what would that look like? It would look like uh, be kind to yourself and uh, know that whatever you're going through, uh, it's not going to look the way that you think it's going to look, you know, you won't understand sometimes why you're angry or sad or uh, being despondent or, but you know, if, if you need to process something, be kind to yourself and don't see it as odd that you're feeling a certain way. Just know that God's trying to heal you. And then I would say you can do anything. There is nothing beyond God's limit to do with you and your success story is, is a success because you put it in his hands and it was going to be whatever was going to be on that mountain. I think my story is more powerful the way that it is with this red bag number four oxygen thing that I had. You know, I, I climbed 3,200 feet that day, you know, 200 more than everyone else. I mean, there's just so many things that I did that I was only able to do because the Lord made it possible and supernaturally helped me up that mountain. But um, yeah, that uh, whatever it is that you need to do, you can. And, uh, and I hope you guys listen to him first. Uh, yeah. And, and I hope you guys are hearing, even when Don was alone, he was never alone because he had a relationship with the maker of the universe. So I just Absolutely. want to invite you guys, you know, to, to listen to this, pass it on to your, your brothers and, and, Make sure that they understand that, you know, dangerous men don't walk alone and that you really are never alone when you have a relationship with our Heavenly Father. But we need each other. We need each other to be able to bounce things off of, to help each other when we fall, to get back up again. And what Don just said, you can do this. You absolutely can do this because you, my friend, if you have the God of the universe in you, you have been unleashed. You are free. You have what it takes because Christ is in you and there's nothing you can't do. Don, thanks for being our guest today. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Yeah, it was so, a, a privilege and honor. Uh, likewise. And guys, remember, we are the resistance. We'll see you next time.